Good morning. Let's get started. Um, I'll try to finish up chapter 16 today. So I'm not sure what time I'm supposed to be done since we started so late, but uh, we'll see. No sense to rush home in the rain and do nothing. Revelation 16, but before we get there, let's, by way of introduction, let's go back toward the beginning of the book. I just want to read over a few verses that kind of build up to this seventh vile judgment and verses that reflect on similar things that have happened up to this point, this growing crescendo of God's wrath and judgment that uh, culminates in the last vial or the end of the seventh seal with the heavens opening and Christ finally returning. Let's look at chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed, backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Then chapter 6, verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. This seven-sealed book we talked about long, long ago. This is the title deed of the earth. There was only one worthy to open it and to claim the contents therein. It's the one who bought back what had been hastily disposed of in the Garden of Eden. God gave man dominion over the earth, the very thing that Psalm 8 talks about. And man despised that birthright, just like Esau, and gave it over to Satan. Christ redeemed it back. He purchased it back. Just like that picture of the land deed that Jeremiah was told to bury in the earth. And now, with the opening of that title deed, he begins to come and claim what is his. And so we have the title deed of the earth slowly opened. And as those seals are removed, judgments fall. Turn to chapter 6 verses 12 and following. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. This is the sixth seal of that title deed. It's almost open. We're up here to the midpoint of the tribulation moving into the second half. And lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken 
of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the, fa- hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of his wrath is come, who shall be able to stand? So the sixth seal judgment is a great earthquake that literally shakes the heavens and alters the geography of the earth. It's the wrath of the Lamb. It has come with this sixth seal. Chapter 8. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and lo, to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. These are the martyrs of all ages that are crying for vengeance, the fifth seal judgment. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and there followed followed hail. And fire mixed with blood or mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth. So here we have the opening of the seventh seal which reveals seven trumpet judgments. And with that opening of the seventh seal there's a great earthquake. And then the first trumpet judgment involves a horrendous hail from heaven. Fire mixed with blood. So the sixth seal and heaven shaking earthquake the seventh seal, the seven trumpets come forth, another earthquake, and then hail and fire. Chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. So now we're the seventh seal is the seventh trumpets. Now we're at the seventh trumpet. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's part of that verse is reflected in the great Hallelujah Chorus. A lot of that came straight from Revelation. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and reigned. And the nations were angry and, and thy wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great. And shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So again we see an earthquake and hail. Chronologically, jump from verse 19 over to chapter 15. 
Remember we had a parenthesis in chapter 12, 13, and 14 where we looked at some of the great characters of the tribulation period. So chronologically, chapter uh, 11, 19 jumps to chapter 15, verse 5. And after that I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. The same thing John sees here at the cha- into chapter, uh, uh, chapter 11. And the seven angels came out of the temple. So we had the temple opened. And we see the Ark of the Testament, lightnings, voices, thunderings, earthquake, and a great hail. And then seven angels step out, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. And from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So now we have the seventh trumpet, an earthquake and hail proceeding from the temple of God in heaven, and that results in seven angels with seven vials. Then we go to chapter 16, verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. So back in chapter 15, we had the temple filled with the glory of God. No man, no saint, no one in heaven was able to approach until the seven vials were complete. Now we have... The seventh angel pouring out his vial and a voice saying, it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightning and there was a great earthquake. Just like we saw with the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal, and the sixth seal before that. Such, however, as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. So, not like what we've read before but greater, even greater than those things. Even worse than the sixth seal earthquake that shook the heavens and drove men into the caves, that moved mountains and islands. Even worse than that. Worse than an earthquake and hail mingled with fire and blood, such as has never been seen upon the earth. Worse than the earthquake that shook open the fountains of the deep and flooded the earth in Noah's day. Verse 19, and the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. They weren't moved as before, but they fled away. The islands were flooded and removed and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So here we have the seventh vile judgment, the culmination of the seventh seal, the culmination of the seventh trumpet, the seventh vile. 
Here the title deed of the earth is fully opened. Fully opened. And the earth is ready to be claimed. As I read, the sixth seal was a great earthquake. We had the seventh seal. There was silence and earthquake and hail. The seventh trumpet, great earthquake, an earthquake and great hail. A type of what would later come. And now this seventh vile voices, thunders, lightnings, a great earthquake and hail. Like the seventh trumpet, but far greater. This further proves that the seventh seal is the seventh, seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are the seven vials. Here we're at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. We're at the end. All of these things happened in the last part of that week. The six seals bring you through the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then with the seventh seal, we begin the last half, what Jesus called the great tribulation. And so you're talking about a lot of things that happen over a small three and a half year period. Here, the seven vials are toward the very end. We're talking months, maybe weeks possibly. But we're at the end. With the seventh seal, we get a taste of what's about to happen. Earthquake and hail. With the seventh trumpet, there's a warm-up. Warm-up. We talk about aftershocks in earthquakes. These earthquakes don't have aftershocks. These earthquakes have pre-shocks. Kind of like a woman in travail. The earth is literally travailing like a woman giving birth. These are the earth's contractions. But with this seventh vial, the earth breaks forth as a child does from the womb. And the earth screams in pain as a woman when the child is delivered. It's funny that Jewish religious tradition refers to a period of time before the coming of Messiah. They deny that Messiah has come already. They're blind to that fact. The blindness is simply astounding. You know, the Jews speak about their great Shema there in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And when they say this or recite this Shema, they literally change the Hebrew word used for one in the Scriptures. You see, the word they use is indivisible one. God can't have a son. Messiah can't be God. There's one God and one God only, they say. But in the Bible, the word used there for one is echad. It's the same word that talks about one day having an evening and a morning. Or one people that spread across the earth after the flood. Or, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they should be one flesh. You see, they appeal to this to claim that Jesus can't be the Son of God. There can't be a trinity. But they have to change the word in their own Hebrew Bible to do it. There's a blindness there. They didn't see it. But even so, their religious traditions know from the readings of the Old Testament that prior to the coming of Messiah, they think it's the first time, even though they ignore the Old Testament that says that Messiah would come and then return to His place until His people recognize their great sin, they still understand that before He comes, the earth will go through birth pangs. It's called the birth pangs of Messiah. And that's what we see happening here. There's always been a Jewish remnant. Praise God there was in New Testament days or none of us would know the truth. 
None of us would know the truth. I think it's important that local churches at least invest something in Jewish missions. That they do more than talk support for Israel and the Jewish people with their mouth. There's a lot of people that give lip service, but they don't really do anything. They don't try to be a witness to their Jewish friends. They don't support believing Jewish Christians in Israel who suffer persecution. They don't support ministries that go to reach the Jews. They just kind of think, ah, they don't want to hear, so we'll go somewhere else. shouldn't be that way. There's always been a Jewish remnant, and there will be even at this time, that knows these are the birth pangs of Messiah. And then they know who Jesus is. Notwithstanding, the earth is going through travail. And by the time with the seventh trumpet, what... The, tr- the birth is forthcoming, it's a warm-up, and then here with the seventh seal, it's executed full-blown. Full-blown. God's judgment at its absolute consummation. So this seventh vile judgment is verses 17 through 21. It contains everything listed therein, and also the events that transpire in Revelation 19. In chapters 17 and 18, we have another great parenthesis that spells out in detail the, the, the meaning of verse 19. So if you look at the structure moving forward, 17 through 21 is the sixth or the seventh vile judgment. And then chapter verse 19 has a footnote that goes into further detail. It's the same footnote that goes with chapter 14. When the angel announces the fall of the world system, chapter 14, 8 and chapter 16, 19 per se have a footnote and that footnote is chapter 17 and 18. And then with chapter 19, we have a scene in heaven that takes place at the end of the tribulation while all hell breaks out on earth. And then midway through the chapter, you have heaven meeting earth. And the one who has the right coming to claim it. Let's look at this verse by verse. Verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. It is done. Now remember back in chapter 15 verse 8. The temple was filled with smoke. No one was able to approach. This was the wrath of God. Something we as the saints... The church in heaven at the time has no part of. There's no reason to approach. We have no part in it. But now that is done. In other words, access or entry is available again. Because the wrath is done with the blowing or the pouring out of this seventh vial. It is done. It comes from a Greek word that means to generate. It's generated. It's done. God's wrath is out. It's not held back anymore. Turn to Luke chapter 21. When when the voice says it is done, I believe this is tied specifically to what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. It is done. The times of the Gentiles are over. Luke 21, it says, 
in verses 24 and following, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This is Jesus Christ's Olivet Discourse, where He gives a discourse on the end times. It's what we also see in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is talking about the scattering of the Jews and the persecutions that would follow them throughout the church age. How Jerusalem would not be a Jewish, a true Jewish capital. It would be controlled by the Gentiles, trodden under feet of Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then it says, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity The sea and the waves roaring. Jesus summing up all of these judgments we see in Revelation. (laughs) Men's heart failing them for fear. We see that even today. Everybody's afraid of something. Everybody's afraid of offending someone. Everybody's afraid of an FBI or Department of Justice as if it's a fourth branch of government. We only have three branches of government in this country. The executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. The FBI is not a branch of government. It's not necessary. It wasn't even in this country till 1908. Since when do they get to decide what to do? Since when are they of equal power? Men's heart, everybody's so scared of everybody. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Just like Daniel prophesied. It says in Matthew they'll see the sign of the Son of Man in the the heavens first. Then they'll see Him. You see, that sign, whatever it is, is what causes the armies gathered together against each other to turn and to try to prevent Messiah and march upon Jerusalem at Armageddon. And... And when these things happen, or I'm sorry, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. I think we can do this. Even though Jews are being told the remnant that begin to see these things come to pass, your redemption draws nigh, your Messiah is coming, we can say the same thing. We see the beginnings even now. Our redemption as a church, the rapture draws nigh. We should lift up our heads. We should not hang them in fear like the rest of the people in this country. We should lift them up because our redemption draws nigh. And our redemption is not Donald Trump. It's not Republicans. You know, these same Republicans that whine and cry about FISA uh, abuses and the abuse of the FBI, that, you know, they, they wait to release this memo after they go ahead and approve... Uh, FISA legislation. I mean, they're not in it for us. Come on. It's all corrupt. And if you think justice is going to be done, you're crazy. You know, our president talks a big talk. He talks a big talk on Twitter. This is a disgrace. Well, do something about it. You've got the constitutional authority to do something about it and fire every one of these people, but you don't do it. So either put up or shut up. That's my opinion. Stop whining on Twitter. Go and do what you were elected to do. Nothing makes me more angry than for someone to be given leadership, given authority, and not use it. I can't stand it in my dojo. I can't stand it in ministry. I can't stand it when a person is given authority and they won't use it. 
And I've seen that. I've seen it in the ministry. I've seen it in churches. Pastors that won't do what they're commissioned to do. And we see it in Washington, D.C. But that's not who we're looking for. When one, the Messiah is given authority, he uses it. Now, he may wait. God sees all but waits. But when it is done, he uses the authority given him. Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 2, that's not the great missionary verse. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what our redemption is. We look forward to that. We should pray for our present. We should support him. We should do exactly what we did this morning. But don't forget that it's better to trust in God than to put confidence in any man. The book of Psalms. Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trodden until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. When that voice comes out of the temple and says, it is done, the times of the Gentiles are over. The liberator of Jerusalem is coming. No more will that city of the great king be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles. No more of Antichrist in the kingdoms of this earth. No more of the United Nations. No more of the filthy Mohammedans and the, wit- and, 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 and the devilish Catholics and Armenians and all that ridiculous uh, uh, Babylonian paganism they call Christianity. No more. No more an international city. The times of the Gentiles is done. So I think it is done relates to that. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. You know, there, come a, there came a point here where God said, You know what? I'm not going to strive with men forever. He's got 120 years and then it's done. You know, God comes to a point where he will not strive with men who are flesh, who come from the dust and who return to the dust. He is Almighty God. Why would he strive with people made of flesh? That He created. There came a point in the antediluvian world where God said it is done. And the rains came. And the fountains of the deep broke up. Again, it is done. This time, a second. Not, God doesn't break His promise. He doesn't flood the world again. He keeps His promise. This time, it's a bathing of fire. A dissolution, absolute destruction, whereby the world system completely and fully collapses in an instant. Not a slow decadence like we see with the ruins of Rome and the archaeological ruins of spread out all over the world in various places. An instant dissolution. There was another time when a statement similar to this one, was cried out. A statement that had a worldwide impact. 
In John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus hung on the cross and he cried with a loud voice, It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Very similar in English, it is done, it is finished, but not the same thing. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished, he said, It is paid in full. What I came to do is done. The payment has been made. Just like that stamp saying paid is stamped on an invoice once what is owed is given over. Jesus cried tetelestai from the cross in Greek. It is finished. It's accomplished. This, however, is it is done. Genomai. What I said I would do, I have done. I have done. The times of the Gentiles is over. Verse 18, there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake. Such as was not since men were upon the earth. And so mighty an earthquake and so great. There have been some horrible earthquakes in history. Earthquakes that buried entire cities. Buried entire swaths of land. Earthquakes that shook buildings to the ground and leveled entire areas. There was a terrible earthquake in San Francisco at the turn of the century. Leveled the place. But they're localized. This is an earthquake that does to the world what happened to San Francisco. What was that, 1908, I think? 1908. This is the worst earthquake of all time. The seventh trumpet is a type. This, the seventh vial, is an anti-type. The antitype of all earthquakes. The world is literally turned upside down. It reels back and forth in space like a drunkard. Isaiah chapter 24, we briefly look at this when I talked about the seventh trumpet. Isaiah 24 describes this, I believe, in no uncertain terms. Just a few verses through here. Uh, Verse 1, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Verse 3, The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. When does this happen? What, what, what Isaiah is seeing here, when is this? Verse 6, Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. This is a time when the curse that fell in creation at the Garden of Eden has been brought to devour the whole earth. The end of the curse. They that dwell therein are desolate and there's very few people left on the planet when this that Isaiah sees happens. That's exactly where we're at in the tribulation. There's already been half the world's population killed at least. There's very few people left. And God turns the world upside down. Verse 13, When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree. And as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. We have that vintage of God's wrath spelled out in Revelation. That is what Isaiah is seeing here. 
says in verse 18, It shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open and the foundations of the earth do shake. When we have an earthquake today, that, take, that happens because the tectonic plates of the earth's crust are grinding against each other. The crust is just, I don't even remember how deep it is, but it's just the surface of the earth. This earthquake shakes the foundations. It shakes the mantle and the core. It's not the crust rubbing together. That's just a type. This is an earthquake that shakes the very foundation. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Peter describes this. The dissolving of the elements. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. A cottage is a a, a house that typically is swiftly built, not very strong. When an earthquake comes, like in a Nepali village, it just falls flat. It doesn't stand. It's gone. I saw this after the Nepal earthquake back in 2015. And entire villages, the cottage just flattened. Just flat. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high. The high ones on high are the dragon, the false prophet, and and the antichrist. He's going to punish them, and he's going to punish their demonic host. And the kings of the earth upon the earth. So with this emptying of the earth, God's punishing the high ones and the kings of the earth. And they shall be gathered together. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And he gathered them together into a place which in the Hebrew tongue is called Armageddon. They shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days they shall be visited. Satan is shut up in a prison when Christ comes down. He's cast into the abyss. And a lock is put on there. And he's there for a thousand years. And after many days, he's visited and he's let loose at the end of the tribulation. Just to prove where men's hearts are. And gathers the nations in rebellion to camp against the city of the Most High God and the saints. And there's not even a battle. Fire comes down from heaven and that's it. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before His ancients, His ancients, the Old Testament saints, gloriously. So we have a picture here of what we're seeing in Revelation 16 and then later in chapter 19. None of this was new. Isaiah saw it. John saw it. The world literally turned upside down. Jesus saying, it talks about the shaking of an olive tree. Jesus talked about the shaking of a fig tree. Casting her untimely figs. The heavens themselves, the foundations of the earth will be shaken. Let's look at a couple other passages that shed light. Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. 
That's what we've been talking about. Armageddon. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. We see this with Jews having to flee and run to the mountains. There's a place prepared for them in the wilderness. All of these things being summed up here. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when He fought in the day of battle. As God fought for Israel in the Old Testament, He's going to go forth and fight for them again. And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east, and, on, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Atzal. Yea, ye shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Revelation 19. The Mount of Olives with this great earthquake... And with the stepping down of Messiah will literally cleave in half. Half of it will move north, half of it will move south, and a great valley will be opened. A great, large, dangerous Muslim neighborhood where you shouldn't be walking around at night nowadays will go splat. Splat! There was a great earthquake in Jerusalem or uh, around 786 B.C., Zechariah talks about it here. Amos talks about it. It's not recorded in the Kings and the Chronicles during the times of Uzziah, king of Judah. Uzziah was a righteous king. He reigned for a long time, about 52 years. And God made him strong. God made him strong, but when he got strong, he trusted in the Lord to make him strong, but then when he became strong, he forgot about that. He marched into the temple and thought, well, I'm the king here. I'm going to offer up incense. And he was very hasty and presumptuous with regard to what God had given specific directions concerning the temple service. And as a result of that, he was struck with leprosy. And the remainder of his reign, he was spent as a leper. Toward the end, he couldn't even hardly rule anymore. He had to have his son sit on the throne and take care of business. You know, Jewish tradition says that the earthquake in the days of Uzziah happened at the moment that he went in to offer that incense presumptuously. But that doesn't really fit the timeline. It can't really be, I don't think it can be possible. Uh, so we don't really know what precipitated that. But in his days, Jerusalem was shaken and people fled. The reference to Atzal is the place where the, the Kidron Valley that runs uh, along the east side of the temple and the Hinnom Valley, which Jesus likened them to hell, they intersect at the south, uh, east cor or southeast corner of Jerusalem and Atzal is where that intersection takes place. And there was a great landslide. Archaeology has confirmed there was an earthquake, just like the Bible says. Okay, the dating isn't exact, so it's possible that this could have timed with that offering of incense, but what you read in the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that. I mean, he was rebuked of the priest and all of that. I mean, nobody would have been rebuking anybody. They'd have been fleeing. Uh, a lot of Jewish tradition is kind of hokey and weird. Uh, we've got to judge it in light of the Scriptures. But there was a great earthquake that, uh, that happened, and people fled. And that was a type 
of what Isaiah is seeing, what Isaiah saw, what Zechariah saw. In Ezekiel 47, you have a description of the land uh, during the millennium, how it'll be set up, how it'll be divided. And we see that the geography is literally changed from what it is now. It talks about waters issuing out of the temple. And as the, the, the man with the reed moves out a thousand cubits at a time, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then it says, Afterward he measured a thousand, and it was a river, verse 5, that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, and a river that could not be passed over. And then it says, uh, these waters, in verse 8, issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And then it talks about fisher, fish coming in. And fishermen, verse 10, standing from En Gedi, even unto En Eglaim, a place to spread forth their nets. If you've ever been to En Gedi, it's on the Dead Sea. It's where David hid from Saul. There's a canyon back in there and a waterfall and there's some neat hike in there, but it's desert country. And you don't fish it in Getty. It's the Dead Sea. There's no fish in the Dead Sea. It's so salty, if you drink it, you get very sick. It burns your skin. You float on top of it because the density is so high. You don't fish in the Dead Sea. There is no fish in there. But what's described here is waters that are healed. The earthquake literally reshapes the geography. And when the temple is erected and Messiah reigns, water flows out of that temple to the east and it heals the Dead Sea. And fish go into there. Now, for a lake to have a vibrant fish life or a sea, it has to have an inlet and it has to have an outlet. Right now, the Dead Sea only has an inlet. It's the Jordan River. It's got nowhere to go. So this, this, this earthquake will literally raise up the Dead Sea in elevation. talks about the mountains being removed. It'll raise it up so that it can flow out into the Red Sea, therefore healing the desert. When water passes through a desert land, it heals it. And then water that comes from the temple will flow into it. And then you have a place that's dead now. It'll be a, a, a fishing capital of the world. So we see the, the geography literally altered. I believe we can say that happened uh, with the earth's geography after the flood. I don't think we can try to determine where Mount, the Garden of Eden is and all these other things based upon descriptions prior to the flood because the flood altered the geography. Maybe this earthquake is going to move it back to what it originally was. I don't know. Amos chapter 1.1. I've always been fascinated by this. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two, day, two years before the earthquake. So I guess Amos might have written this verse two years later, or maybe this was probably... How is he going to write two years before an earthquake that hasn't happened? Unless this verse was added later... Here you have what follows being declared to be two years before something that hadn't happened yet. This is that same earthquake that Zechariah refers to. Two years before the earthquake, Amos pronounces judgment on the northern kingdom. 
He pronounces judgment on Jerusalem. And then two years later, God sends a great earthquake. We don't know where the epicenter was. But God sent a warning. And the earthquake that would happen two years later would be a type, a shadow of what we see here with the seventh vial. Verse 2, and he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. So an earthquake is described as God roaring from Zion. That's what we see here. The seventh vial is God roaring. The heavens shaken, the foundations shaken. The mountains moved out of their places and the isles covered. The geography of the land completely altered. The Mount of Olives split in two. Waters healed. So none of this is new. It's all been foreshadowed and prophesied. That's why we must use Scripture to interpret Scripture. You can't understand Revelation without cross-referencing the Old Testament. And as we cross-reference the Old Testament, these ideas that Revelation's already been fulfilled in the past or that it's just a bunch of dark symbolism and it's not literal, that becomes foolish. Because you end up having to toss the whole Bible out. It's clowns parading themselves as theological teachers that sit around talking about this stuff already being fulfilled. When in history was there such a great earthquake that literally covered islands and removed mountains that unlike what has ever been seen on the earth? When was this? When was this fulfilled? When did this happen in the days of Nero? I mean, some of these guys are clowns, man. They got nothing better to do but to sit around and John Calvin this and John Calvin that and, and Revelation this and Israel is church and church is this. And we don't have time for that. We're living in the last days. There's no time for that. But when we cross-reference Revelation with the Old Testament, those ideas look more and more foolish. More and more foolish. Verse 19, and the great city was divided into three parts. Now what is this referring to? What's the great city? If you look at chapter 11 verse 8, it talks about the dead bodies of those street preachers lying in the streets of the great city. For three days and, and a half. Lying in the streets of the great city. We're told that great city is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where our Lord was crucified. Well, that's Jerusalem. So here Jerusalem in chapter 11 is the great city. In chapter 21 verse 10, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven is called the great city. But also in chapter 14 verse 8, we see Babylon... Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city. Chapter 17, verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. That's mystery Babylon. And then in chapter 18, Babylon is called the great city numerous times. So what's being talked about here? And the great city was divided into three parts. Is this Babylon? Or is this Jerusalem? This is another example of where you can jump quick and not properly interpret Scripture in its context. Chapter 18, Babylon, the great city, mentioned time and time again. However, when you look at verse 21, it says, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great mountain and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence 
shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So Babylon, the great city, is literally thrown down to where it's not even found. That word thrown down in the Greek is like when you take, like when somebody takes ashes and scatters them. You know, maybe the ashes of a loved one, they go out and scatter them over the earth. They just scatter and blow away. There's nothing left. So the great city that's divided in three parts in chapter 16 can't be Babylon. Can't be, because it's thrown down. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem here is divided into three parts. When you look at what happens in Zechariah 14 in a valley being created, you could see how this happens. And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations, Babylon being a prime example, fell. That word for fell is a very strong verb in the original Greek language. It literally means to thrust down or to put down or prostrate. Make, it's like making someone, if you were forcing someone to get down on their knees in front of you, that's what that verb would be used. It's what Nebuchadnezzar did with the people when he erected his image in the plain of Dura. They were forced down. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not be made to bow. But the cities here are thrown down and literally made to bow. The only one left standing at the end of the day is Jerusalem. At the end of the day, the only city left standing entering the millennial kingdom is Jerusalem. It's divided in three parts, it'll be rebuilt. New Jerusalem will come down from heaven. There'll be a millennial temple. A new Jerusalem will hover above the earth. And an earthly Jerusalem will have a millennial temple. There'll be division in the land. There'll be water running out, healing the Dead Sea. But it's the only city that survives. Everybody hates that city today. Everybody wants a part of it. Everybody mocks it and says it won't. it's not Israel. It's not a Jewish city. It's not the capital of Israel. But here we see the cities that mock that today literally bow down to a Jewish capital. Literally bow down. They're thrown down. You can say Jerusalem's not the capital of Israel, but the cities from where you cry these things today, New York included, will be thrown down and bow before a Jewish capital. It's all going to fall. All of it. Everything we build is going to fall. Not saying we shouldn't be good stewards. Not saying we shouldn't enjoy. Solomon said, there's no greater gift given to man than to eat and to drink and to enjoy the fruit of his labor in this earth. That's a gift from God. To enjoy him. But remember, you start hoarding up. You start worrying about the future. You start grabbing on everything. Somebody else is just going to come along and use it however they want to use it. And you can't do anything about it. You, know, you may raise up and store up all this stuff for your children and then your children may grow up and be unrighteous and they may waste it and throw it all away and there's nothing you can do about it. Because you brought nothing into this world, you can't bring anything out. Solomon says that very clearly in Ecclesiastes, just like Job. can't take it with you. Everything we build is going to fall. When we see this written here, it ought to make us think about where we put our energies and what value we attach to earthly things because it's all going to fall. This house will be destroyed at some point. 
It's not going to be a slow decay for the cities of the world like ancient Rome. You know, cities and ruins come and go and we build on top of them. We keep building more and more and more. Ancient tales where they, the archaeologists study, they, they, there's layers at the bottom and layers built on top and top and top. This is going to all fall. It's not, there's not going to be another layer built on top. It's going to be thrown down. Everything will be thrown down. I'm reminded of chapter 14, verse 8. Back when we had those snapshots, like we talked about the snapshots from World, World War II, the pictures were of a thousand words. We had a snapshot of assembly, a snapshot of judgment, a snapshot of rest, a snapshot of uh, reaping. The snapshot of judgment were three angelic announcements. The everlasting gospel, the fall of the world system, Babylon has fallen, and the doom of the beast worshipers. And with that second messenger flying through heaven, announcing what we see happen here. Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of her fornication. There's the announcement. Here we see it carried out. Great Babylon is included. She is one of the cities of the earth. The world system. The religious element. The fornication mentioned there. And the commercial element. The great city mentioned there. The world system. As illustrated in the world's cities. Cities are the foundation of our corrupt world system. They are putrid swamps. I'm not talking necessarily about small towns. I'm talking about cities. You show me a major city in this world that's not a putrid, filthy swamp. Show me a city that's not the source of all the evil and immorality that eventually flows into the countryside. Would we have some of the wickedness in these small corners of North Carolina had they not flowed here from people that went out to the cities and brought it back? New York's a putrid, filthy swamp. Chicago, the same way. Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, filthy, wicked places. They may be beautiful to the eye. San Francisco's a beautiful city. But morally speaking, spiritually, it's decadent and dark. And eventually, that decadence reveals itself to the eye. I'm shocked at what San Francisco has become. It's the product of the mental disorder that is liberalism. You got naked, you got people sleeping in the streets, some of them half naked, people defecating in the streets. In fact, there was somewhere, I think it was Portland, passed a law, or uh, recently uh, I read something about it where no longer are they going to consider it a crime for people to publicly defecate in the streets. Because when the people do this, if an illegal immigrant does this, it it gets into the database and it alerts ICE and it eventually might result in that illegal alien getting deported. So we're going to decriminalize pooping in the streets. I mean, that's, that's the country we live in. San Francisco is filthy. I remember preaching down there the last time a couple years ago and there was human feces on the sidewalk. So eventually that spiritual decadence manifests itself. Washington, D.C. is filthy and as putrid as any city on this planet. I don't know why you'd want to live there. I don't know why you think that can be fixed. It can't be. It's putrid and filthy and nothing in that beltway represents us. Nothing. 
So many well-meaning politicians are elected and they go to that swamp and they're compromised and corrupted and can no longer be trusted. But all that's going to fall. All those swamps will be filled in with dirt and scattered. You know, our president may try to drain the swamp, but the only one who's ever truly going to drain the swamp is Messiah. And it starts with a big earthquake. It starts with these cities physically falling down flat and being scattered to the wind. That's draining the swamp. You want to drain the swamp at the FBI? Then every single person named in that memo should be arrested and thrown in prison. They should be tried for treason, and if found guilty, they should be executed swiftly. Just like the uh, Ginsburgs were. Old Sparky, Sing Sing Prison, electric chair. That's what should happen. If you want to drain the swamp, then arrest those people, give them a fair trial. If they're found guilty, the same fate. Well, was it Ginsburg? That, that Jewish couple that was executed in the 50s for uh, uh, selling uh, nuclear or giving nuclear secrets to the Soviets. It's not Ginsburg. What were those people called? Their names. Rosenbergs. The Rosenbergs. Executed. Man and wife. That's what will drain the swamp. But we, we don't live... I mean, nobody has any guts to do what's right by a nation anymore. Nobody has the guts to do what's right, but God does what's right. We see here in verse 19, the great city was divided into three ports and the cities of the nations fell. That's powerful. That's powerful. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. What does that last verse mean? The cities fell. Great Babylon comes into remembrance. God gives her the fierceness of his wrath. We're going to see what that means in Revelation 17 and 18. Chapters 17 and 18 are a detailed explication or explanation of verse 19. What 1619 means and what it looks like. What the announcement in chapter 14 means and what it looks like. So I'll save a more detailed explanation until then. Verse 20, And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Now this isn't like the uh, sixth seal judgment where the islands and the mountains are moved. This is far greater than that. The islands are flooded and lost forever. And the mountains are no longer found. This earthquake will change the contour of the earth. It will level mountains, raise seas, remove islands, and literally reshape the land of Israel. In the millennium, there will have to be some new maps drawn up. The old ones won't work anymore. And this isn't over a long period of time. This is in an instant. In an instant, man made geologic evolution is shown to be a farce. With this earthquake, what man says take, takes millions and millions of years happens in an instant, in a moment. The whole world is what we saw happen at Mount St. Helens in 1980. There were canyons formed in an instant. Something that Men would say it would take thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Mount St. Helens eruption proved that lots of time is not needed to effect climactic geologic change. 
Mount St. Helens proves what the earth, what would have, could have happened to the earth in the great flood. Here we're going to see what happened there happen in an instant of time across the face of the whole planet. As I read from Amos chapter 1, it says the top of Mount Carmel will literally wither away. The mountains won't be found. It'll wither just like a rose withers and falls off. Verse 21, And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Give me a few extra minutes this morning. We did start late. Every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. I thought this commentator on his commentary in Revelation introduced this verse really well. Very hard language and I thought it would be worth reading. It says, so throughout the tribulation, men don't get any better. They get worse. The blood of God manifested by the bleeding lamb hanging on Calvary's cross did not change hearts. The Holy Spirit, the blessed comforter who is purer than the fairest woman that ever walked the face of this earth has been wooing the hearts of men and women for 2,000 years. And he yet is unable to do the work. Every Gentile refined influence of biblical Christianity, every gentle reminder of a Christian mother, a Christian home, and even church bells on Sunday morning, flowers at funerals and weddings, with the preacher presiding with a Bible in his hand, all these gentle and refined Western Christian influences for 2,000 years fail to change the hearts of unbelieving men or renovate human nature. And now in the end time, as God pours out unsheeted hell upon the inhabitants of a Christ-rejecting, Bible-despising religious world. And all of them are religious. Don't let them fool you because they are all as religious as Judas Iscariot. Man still does not repent. He does not get right. With hailstones weighing eight pounds apiece, destroying his gardens, crops, houses, automobiles, etc. With the sun scorching the skin off his back, with his tongue swelling with pain from thirst, and nothing to drink but blood. With half-drugged populations reeling across the earth, and rabid animals killing children, man uses the tongue God gave him to blast Jesus' name. And go right on worshiping sex, education, money, and science. Men don't get better. Men don't get better. It says here that great hailstones fell out of heaven, the weight of a talent. Some, like this commentator, have interpreted that to be around six to eight pounds. That's big. Josephus, the Jewish historian, talked about the common heavy talent that was used in his day, which was not long after the New Testament period. And he talked about this common heavy talent was, very, uh, was used uh, regularly in Syria and Judea in New Testament times. And the common heavy talent was about the weight of a small man. So it would have been around 130 pounds. So we're, we, we may be talking about 8 to 10 pound hailstones, or we may be talking about 130 pound hailstones. Really, there ain't a whole lot of difference. 
I mean, either way, what you've got is a veritable rain of bowling balls falling out of heaven. I mean, you know, an eight to ten pound hailstone being cast down to heaven, you know, I don't know that anything any heavier than that's really going to make much of a difference. Either way, there's a veritable rain of bowling balls. Some say eight to ten pounds, some say a hundred pounds. You know, it would make sense that John would be referring to what was common in Judea at the time. But then again, he was exiled, okay? He was exiled. He used Roman time in his Gospels. So I don't think we can know for sure exactly what the weight is, but it's pretty heavy. It causes men to blaspheme God because the plague was exceeding great. That phrase exceeding great tells us that regardless of the exactitudes, this is heavy. In fact, the rain of bowling balls might be a little milder than this. Turn to Leviticus 24 because we're told here that the people blaspheme God and He throws down hailstones from heaven. Leviticus 24. Just give me a little time here. We started late. I want to finish this. Chapter 24, verse 16. What you had uh, in the desert... Uh, when the children were wandering in the desert, the children of Israel, you had an Israelitish woman. That means uh, she um, had a mother who was Jewish, but her father was, uh, was uh, Egyptian, so she's called Israelitish. She had a son, and this son got in a fight with another Jewish man, and they strove with one another, and in the course of that, the son of the Israelitish woman blasphemed God. And they came to Moses... Uh, and wanted to know what to do. And they put him in ward to determine the mind of the Lord. And then God spoke to Moses. And he said here in verse um, 14, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregations shall certainly stone him, as well the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. Stoning was the punishment for blasphemy in the Old Testament. God uttered it to be so. If you don't like that, take it up with God. It the same applied to the citizen as did to the stranger. God was no respecter of, pun- of persons. The blasphemy of God's name was to be punished by stoning. Now Jesus was accused of blasphemy. But those corrupt, wicked Jews who tried Him, Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin who stirred up the people, who boasted in the law, didn't even follow the law. When it came to the punishment for one convicted of blasphemy. You know, if Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, why didn't they stone him? Why did they go to the Romans and persuade them to crucify him? See, they disobeyed the law. That entire trial of Jesus was corrupt from one end to the other. And yet in all of that, prophecy was fulfilled. Messiah, it said, would be pierced in his hands and his feet. Messiah would be one whom they would look upon, they would look upon him whom they have pierced. So their hypocrisy, their corruption fulfilled ancient prophecy. 
Those who boasted in the law didn't even follow the law. And that's usually the way it goes. Those that boast in freedom and democracy despise it. It's funny hearing all these people today talk about threats to democracy because this memo was released. And these are people that never cared about democracy one ounce. They never cared about the representation of the people at all. Hypocrites. But their hypocrisy doesn't stop God's Word from being fulfilled. Just a side note. In chapter 20 of Leviticus, verse 13, it says... If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman. In other words, if man and man or woman and woman have sexual relations that God commanded to be between man and woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So the same God who said that the punishment for blasphemy in Israel was to be stoning said that homosexuals were to be put to death. And that their blood is not on the people that put them to death. It's on themselves. That's what God said. Capital punishment for sodomy. And the blood is on the sodomite's head. Now that runs amok of our concepts of God today. But this is the God we worship. If you want to know how to purge the land of sin, God told Israel your law would teach the nations. I'm not going to apologize for any of this. And God doesn't... Expect others to execute judgment in a way that he's not willing to execute it himself. What we see here at the end of chapter 16 is God carrying out the punishment for blasphemy. He stones men from heaven. This is a stoning. Just like was supposed to happen in Israel. But this time it comes from God. All those that boast about God of the Old Testament this and the Bible this and God is love. And they mock him. And accuse him of genocide and all of these things, mocking these passages in Leviticus, he's going to stone them from heaven. This is a literal stoning from heaven for blasphemy. And it'll fall upon all the reprobates and the sodomites and everybody walking the earth at that time that's still alive and their blood will be on their own heads. So as people lament God's government that he gave Israel, let us remember that nothing's changed. There's going to be a stoning from heaven. There's an interesting little book in the Old Testament that very rarely gets read. It's the book of Lamentations. And there's some very powerful passages there in chapter 3 about God's mercies being new every morning. His compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. The book of Lamentations is a collection of five laments or five sad songs written by the prophet Jeremiah after he saw the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Lamentations is a name that we gave him. But in Hebrew, the book is called Echa. And basically what it means is it's a question. Jeremiah is asking, how... Did it come to this? How did it come to this? That's the question. The Hebrew title of the book of Lamentations is Echa. How, how did it come to this? The city's destroyed. It's all happened. The arrangement of the book is interesting. The first two chapters have 22 verses each. They're acrostics. So in other words, 
Verse 1 starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 2 starts with the second letter all the way through the end of the alphabet. So you have a verse starting with each letter of the alphabet. The second lamentation, chapter 2, is the same way. Chapter 3 is a triplicate. It's 66 verses. So verses 1, 2, and 3 start with Aleph. Verses 4, 5, and 6 start with Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, on to the end of the alphabet. So it's an amazing acrostic. Chapter 4, another 22-verse lament, an acrostic. Chapter 5 is not an acrostic, but it is a 22-verse lament. So these things are organized, and it's all organized around that question, how did it come to this? We ask that question now in America. How did we get to this point? How did it come to this? I think the answer is in chapter 2, verse 17 of Jeremiah's laments. The Lord hath done that which He had devised. He hath fulfilled His word that He commanded in the days of old. He hath thrown down and hath not pitied, and He hath caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He hath set up the horn of thine adversaries. What had God told Israel He would do in the, in the law, in Deuteronomy, if they turned their back on Him? Exactly what Jeremiah saw with his own eyes. You know, sitting around, how did it come to this? It came to this because we did what God told us not to do and God remained true to His Word. That's how it came to this. God kept His Word. At the end of the day, God will keep His Word. And when we ask, how did it come to this? How did it come to this that this whole nation is confused? We turned our back upon Him and He has simply done what He warns nations that knew Him and forgot about Him through the example of Israel in the Old Testament. He just does His Word. That's why we're here. That's why men are here at the end of time. How did it come to this? When the cities of the nation fall, how did it come to this? It came to this because you ignored God and He did what He said He was going to do. God is not swayed. Now what we see here in Revelation has happened before. A stoning from heaven. God stoning men from heaven has happened before. And where it happened before in the Old Testament is a picture of what we see here. Turn to Joshua 10. Please just be patient. i got to finish this. Joshua 10 verses 8 through 13. This is when... That the Israelites were conquering the land of Canaan, seven-year campaign. They went after uh, the central part, then the southern part, and then the northern part. We talked about Hot Sword in a battle uh, in the Valley of Jezreel uh, in Joshua's day last week. Here we have uh, the involvement of uh, uh, the conquering of the southern land of Canaan. In Joshua 10, verse 8, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not. Five kings came against him in their armies. For I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Israel was greatly outnumbered here, but God delivered five confederations over to them. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon. And smote them to Azekah and unto Makedah. Azekah is a hill. I've actually sat up there and built a fire up there. 
I, Jamie's been up there. There's kind of a, it's an old British park, but you can drive up a dirt road and hike up the hill and you can look over the Valley of Elah where uh, uh, David slew Goliath. So that's where uh, these were chased, to the hill of Azekah and to Machedah. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, standst thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ahalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Verse 14, And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened in the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So God, God's done this before. What you see here with God doing for Joshua is a type of what God does for Messiah. Great hailstones from heaven. It's happened before. In Psalm 44, the psalmist reminds Israel, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. How thou didst drive out the heathen from thy hand and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword. Neither did their own arm save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance because thou hast favor upon them. Israel did not get that land. God fought for them. God saved them. God delivered him as like, like as when he threw hailstones down from heaven and stoned the people. Same can be said of America. America in its founding, in its establishment, was literally a miracle. The fact that the colonies could defeat the great power of Britain in the Revolutionary War, that it could survive a civil war, these were miracles in which God delivered men for His purposes. America would become a great light to the nations during the Philadelphia church period and send out missionaries and send out the gospel in many ways. But we did not become a nation for these things by our own hands and by our own swords. Things as as seemingly insignificant as a cow pasture, not very far from where I live, and a few minor, seemingly minor mistakes in a little battle that involved a ragtag bunch of patriots and an organized British army literally shook the entire foundation of the world and changed the outcome of that war. But it wasn't by our own hand. We've forgotten this. We've forgotten why we are here today. Why we have freedom today. Our freedom doesn't come from an FBI. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't trust any FBI agent. There may, may be people in there that love the country and serve the country. I don't know if there are or not. I really don't care. I don't trust a man in an FBI uniform. The day in America is such, I don't trust a man in a police officer's uniform. Trust but verify at best. We can't trust these people. It's not like the days of old. You know, generations ago, you could trust a police officer. Not anymore. I don't worship the thin blue line. Won't do it. Unless they show themselves otherwise, they're an enemy of me and my family. I praise God for those that keep law and order. That's a part of government. It's a restraining of evil. 
They can't be trusted. The FBI can't be trusted. Our freedom doesn't come from these people. Our freedom doesn't come from a military. Some of these guys come back from Afghanistan and they act like their sacrifice is as equal as those that stormed the beaches of Normandy. Are you kidding me? That was a conscripted army, not a volunteer army. But they come back, and I've heard the story about my buddy died in my arms in Afghanistan so many times. There's no way it can be true. There's no way that happened to that many people exactly the same way. Come on. And they go, go on, and you know, you know, we'll be preaching, and they'll talk about, you know, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't have any freedom. I just laugh at that. My freedom doesn't come from you because you took a job and got a paycheck and went over to Afghanistan, that didn't have anything to do with my freedom. Our freedom is a gift from God, and we've forgotten it. We think it resides with our military. We think it gives departments of, of like the DOJ and the FBI the, the ability to do whatever they want to do because they get protect our freedom and our security. No, they don't. There would be no security and freedom in this country if it weren't for God's grace. And we've lost a whole bunch of it. Israel forgot this. We have forgotten this. We know what happened to Israel. So when it happens to us, may we not be those that say, how did it come to this? We don't need to ask that question. We know why it came to this. April 26, 1803, in a place called Lingle, France, in Normandy, uh, it was recorded that there was a hailstorm with hailstones weighing about 10 pounds. In World War II, there were atomic bombs tested in the Pacific at the Bikini Atoll. And after the atomic bomb was tested, it literally messed up the atmosphere and caused hailstones anywhere from 10 to 20 pounds to fall. And it dented and damaged the armor, plate on, armor plates on the ships. Atomic experiments, they can change the weather. Our government's already involved in messing with the weather. You think that was random, normal weather for that hurricane down there in Houston just to sit there and rotate over that city over and over again? Come on. Come on. There's no telling what they're spraying over us. Atomic experiments mess with the weather. It says that Antichrist will change times and seasons. The only way you can mess with seasons is if you can alter the weather. Officially... The heaviest hailstones that have ever been recorded, April 14, 1986, was in a place I've been to, a place I've preached, a district called Gopalganj in Bangladesh, where the hailstones supposedly weighed 2.25 pounds. But since nowadays we think we're smarter than everybody else and only we can record things accurately, things that were recorded years ago, like in France, are immediately dismissed, even though people wrote down from an eyewitness account. The largest hailstones officially by those who think they're smarter than everybody else in all of human history uh, fell July 23, 2010 in a place called Vivian, South Dakota. These hailstones had about an 8-inch diameter. So you're looking at almost a kid-sized bowling ball there. So, you know, what we're, what's described here is well beyond any of that. I've seen hailstones in a guy's freezer in Minnesota that were the size of a baseball. So I can't imagine something even weighing 8 to 10 pounds or 130 pounds. Um, but that brings us here to the end of chapter 16. 
Revelation 17 and 18, are a, they're in a side of sorts, a footnote. They describe in detail what it means when John writes, Great Babylon came in remembrance before God. We see the destruction of the world system. Chapter 17, the religious element. It, re, it, it meets its demise at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then we see the commercial element meeting its demise here with the culmination of the vile judgments. We already talked about the world system, Babylon as representing the world system. We traced it from Cain, the father of the world system, all the way up um, uh, to this time, to Antichrist. Back in 1996, when I was in college, uh, I took a course on the book of Revelation and the, I wrote an exegetical commentary on Revelation 17 and I actually found it this morning. The Judgment of the Great Harlot, an exegetical commentary on Revelation 17. This was December 11, 1996. 60-page commentary. I was only 20 years old and... Um, I went verse by verse through this chapter. It was one of the earlier commentaries. I actually had to diagram. Those of you that diagram sentences in homeschool, I had to diagram the whole chapter. I outlined the book. I gave some in-depth discussion. And I was taking a class. It was an old professor from Dallas Seminary. He was solid as a rock, theologically. And uh, he's since passed away and gone to be with the Lord. But... You had to do a lot of writing assignments in his class. He was very difficult. I had him for inductive Bible study. I took him on Daniel Revelation. I took him in some of my advanced Greek classes. And we always had to do a commentary. And then you had to do outlines and all kinds of stuff. And he graded on a strange system. He, you, got, you got a number anywhere from one to five. Okay? One being the best and five being the lowest. And he, he was my... Uh, I also had him for my preaching. Some of my first preaching uh, classes, homiletics. And you didn't want to get a five. And it was nigh impossible. Very few people ever got a one. So there was always this, with those of us that actually cared and wanted good grades, there was always this competition. Is it possible to get a one? Now, I never saw anybody get a one on their sermons or like outlines, uh, summaries, diagrams, the smaller projects. Uh, that you would have throughout the semester. I heard of it happening with the exegetical commentaries, but it was extremely rare. When I got my commentary back, excellent commentary, one. I got a one. So many, so many tried and so many failed. Never got a one on anything but the final commentary. I got a one on my commentary in inductive Bible study, Third John. And I also got a one on my commentary in my advanced Greek class. I can't remember. I'd have to dig that out. But I'm not going to preach through this. But uh, I thought it was fun, funny that I found it. So next week we'll be getting into chapter 17. I hope to be able to move through it quickly and then chapter 18. But there's some interesting little things. And as I've perused through it, what's given me great comfort, and I take no credit for this, I give credit to God is obviously God has shaped me and He's taught me much and refined me much. But when I read this, I really can't find 
anything other than some refinements in here that I don't stand on even now. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. It's consistent. What I'm reading through here is consistent with what I've been teaching on the book of Revelation. I just give God glory for that. Now, there's obviously some refinements, but that's a great encouragement. It's an encouragement to those that stay consistent in their walk with the Lord. We grow. But if you look back on your life and you look on your walk and you're consistent, you're not going back and forth like a pendulum on a clock, praise God for that. That's the mark of a man that can be trusted. And we have men like that in this church. And the only reason I have been able to have some consistency is because of God's grace and I had other men and people to look to who modeled that for me. And not like these people that go all over the map. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We did start a little late, but it's been a blessing to uh, exegete your word and to come to the end of another chapter. Lord, we're closing in on the end of this book, this long five-year journey. That's been a blessing that's opened our eyes to truths in every book of the Bible at least once, twice, three times. Lord, we know that uh, these things are a source of hope for the saints, for those who long for justice. One day justice will be served fairly, Lord, and you will rule and reign in righteousness. Everything we see here will fall. So, Lord, while we have it, may we use it for your glory. We ask that you bless the meal. Please protect those that are traveling home later in this nasty weather. And we pray for rest this afternoon on this day of rest you have given us. Lord, we give you all praise, honor, and glory. We lift up the name of Jesus and we look forward to his coming. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for these promises to her to be fulfilled. And we pray that justice and truth would come out even in our country today. And as a result, men would flee to Christ. We pray for our president that he would be a man of truth and justice. Lord, that he would not talk but do. Mm -hmm. And he would do what is right because it's right, not because it's popular, not because of a political consideration. And uh, we ask those things. But we never be those that put hope and confidence in a man, but put it in God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.